The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest this week Francesca Peacock, a frequent reviewer for us, and the author of her first book, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Margaret Cavendish is a 17th century writer who is, well, she's been described as Mad Madge of Newcastle and by no less than Virginia Woolf as being crack-brained and bird-witted. But Francesca has a different view on her. Francesca, welcome. Tell us about this extraordinary Duchess of Newcastle. Yeah, so excited to talk about her. So, yes, what most people have heard of her is normally the Virginia Woolf line, uh, crack-brained, bird-witted, also uh, quixotic as an elf is another one of the lines, and a giant cucumber, and a bogey to frighten clever girls with, which is my absolute favourite line. And I have to say, she didn't actually scare me off, but very nearly. So she is the first Duchess of Newcastle. So she is absolutely amazing woman. She's one of England's first feminist authors, scientists, natural philosophers, and one of the first women to really you know Virginia Woolf says it's Afro Ben who first makes a living by her pen there is a a claim to be made that it's Margaret Cavendish she's a very very early incredibly important thinker who's kind of been largely written out of history because everyone did attack her as mad both in her own lifetime and for centuries afterwards so the biography just before mine was called um, Mad Match in 2003. (laughs) Well as we'll see she's given those people some encouragement in the course of her career (laughs) we have to set out how but To start with, your subtitle, you call her someone who's had a revolutionary life. And obviously revolution, she was born just before the sort of civil war. Revolution really did shape her life, didn't it? But she wasn't herself a revolutionary, was she? Can you describe how the English Revolution the effect it had on her and on her writing. Yes, so she's born in 1623, which is obviously by the time she's in her late teens and her early 20s, the Civil War has broken out. And I think we often forget that England had a civil war, which turned you know half the families against other families. The king was executed and we were a republic for a significant amount of time. So it's a hugely important part of English history, which is often rapidly glossed over. People talk about France and America having a revolution rather than us. So at the age of 19, Margaret Cavendish is living in St. John's Abbey, which is is an English country house, which has now gone, sadly, on former monastic land in Colchester. Her family were wealthy, but not particularly aristocratic. So she would have had money and everything. And crucially, they were very, very royalist. So one day, her elder brother is trying to prepare arms to get to send them to the king. Everything's looking very wrong. We've had all of the drama of Charles I and his fights with Parliament. And her family house, when she's quite young, is stormed by parliamentarian forces who break in, steal everything, down from bed linen to sheets to candles. They steal absolutely everything. We have amazing records of them trying to recover it. And her mother, her sister, and possibly Margaret herself are paraded through Colchester and taken to the county jail, where they remain for a couple of days. Um, the sources are a bit ropey on whether or not Margaret was there. The fact she never wrote about it is not proof that she wasn't. She often writes about women being captured 
captured. It's one of her favourite motifs. And then after that point, she becomes a lady-in-waiting for Henrietta Maria, who is Charles I's wife, and is a very, very big part of the English Civil War. So is very heavily involved with the organisation of arms and sorting everything out. Becomes kind of like a propaganda figure for both sides. So royalists are more in favour of this, and the parliamentarians like to kind of see her as um, a part of a Catholic plot or kind of an unnatural she-woman. She calls herself the she-generalissima in one of her letters, which is absolutely brilliant. But Margaret herself, sorry, I should just say, isn't hugely warlike in this disposition. I mean, she kind of goes yeah. to be a lady-in-waiting and she's like basically kind of pissed off. She doesn't like it. Exactly. She's utterly terrified. So she travels to Oxford, which is where the court is in exile, and she's so scared. Later on in her life, she writes a play about her experience of being a lady-in-waiting, and she writes herself as a character into it, and her character's Lady Bashful. Lady Bashful never says a word on stage. <laughs> which is kind of brilliant. So she's an incredibly shy figure, incredibly anxious, turns up at court, unable to say a word, very, very young, and is kind of derided by the rest of court. I mean, fair enough, this woman's turned up and she won't speak to any of them. And then, so her life kind of begins. She's first enters into public life with the Civil War. She then goes into exile in France from Oxford after Henrietta Maria works out she needs to get out of England, basically. And she goes on a very dangerous boat journey across the Channel, at which point Henrietta Maria tells the captain that if it looks like they're about to be captured, then he should blow the whole ship up. And apparently, according to a couple of sources, um, all of the ladies in waiting started throwing up and screaming, which is is probably fair. Would have been quite scary. So she's in Paris, Saint-Germain for the early part of the 1640s. It's there where she meets William Cavendish, who is a Civil War royalist commander. Uh, It's very involved with the Civil War effort, but is in exile because of an absolute failure at a battle where he miscommunicated with Prince Rupert and kind of had to leave England in disgrace. So the rest of her life for about 14 years uh, in exile till 1660 with the Restoration. So her whole life is kind of truncated and marked by this period of revolution. She writes amazing poems where she describes how the Civil War cut up families and changed them against each other, like the the suits in a pack of cards. She also writes war poetry where she describes seeing corpses and, and all of these things. And it's kind of easy to see it as an abstract thing. These are abstract political debates, I think, is often how we think of them. We think of it in terms of 17th century politics. But it was very real for her. Two of her brothers were killed during the war. One of them was a very, very famous execution of Charles Lucas at Colchester which um, occurs in loads of sources and loads of like funereal poetry for him and she would have seen like complete disorder at one point her family house was raided and they opened up the family tomb and cut off all the hair to wear as wigs the parliamentarian forces did so it's a uh, it's a world with a different level of disorder and horror and change than, than we're used to now and yet she immediately starts writing I mean there's this sense that you know when she's in exile she gets going, doesn't she, with her poetry yeah. and her essays, and she's, but she's writing in a kind of, at this stage, quite an untutored way, isn't she? She sort of learns yeah. on the job. So definitely. So she was born in a period where women of her class would have had access to books and would have been taught how to read and to write. Uh, so they letter correspondence is obviously a huge part of it. So these women weren't illiterate, especially not of the social class, but. She wasn't necessarily taught much more than how to read and write and how to sew, sing and dance, she writes in her autobiography. And later on, towards the end of the century, uh, female education and women's writing, women's thinking becomes much more of a thing which is much 
better disseminated. But at the time, she's she's very much untutored. She marries this man, William Cavendish, who is the first Duke of Newcastle. He's the grandson of Bess of Hardwick. He builds Hardwick Hall and Chatsworth. So very, very wealthy, aristocratic family. And he, prior to the war, was at the centre of a group of patrons called the Welbeck Circle. So he was the patron to, for Thomas Hobbes, for Ben Johnson, for a couple of other 17th century poets like Richard Flecknoe. So some minor figures, some very, very well-known figures. And uh, Ben Johnson had written masks for him, for example. And there's a tract which is written, used to be thought it was by uh, Thomas Hobbes, it's now thought it's by someone else. But he's kind of at a centre of intellectual debate, both scientific and literary. And in exile, after he marries Margaret, he kind of sets up an academy to teach her. So we have a receipt that his brother bought Margaret a scale model of the solar system in order to be able to teach her about the solar system. So it's kind of this beautiful, um, they have this academy and they're living in Ruben's house, the former artist's home in Antwerp. So it sounds kind of absolutely idyllic. And it's here where she really begins to write. She self-describes herself as having like a very melancholic nature, very anxious, very depressed. And she describes writing as being the thing which kind of liberated her from that in the absence of uh, much else going on. I mean, exile wasn't a particularly enlivening place. That being said, she did have dinner with um, Thomas Hobbes and René Descartes at one point. So I think she was having maybe a more fun exile than some people. That's that's Um, extraordinary detail, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I know that one of the faults that you ascribe to many of the discussions of Margaret Cavendish in the centuries after her death has been that they tend to see her as an appendage to William and that, you know, it's the Duke and his mad wife. Um, Yeah. But the marriage was important, wasn't it? Not only because he provided her with this kind of connection, but can you give us sort of sense of of their relationship? I mean, there was this big age gap. He was not necessarily expected to marry her. It does seem to have been quite a serious love match, though not without difficulties. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so he was three decades older than her. They meet when she is 22 and he is 52. And it's, it's slightly unsavoury, but I don't think it's particularly unusual for the period. I think a lot worse is going on. So in the same chapel, John Evelyn marries his bride when she's 12, I think, um, which is a bit well, more horrific. did Margaret's own father um yeah. father her older brother on her mother when she was yeah. 13 or something. I mean, yes out of wedlock and he'd had to go into exile because he got sent into an exile for an illegal duel um so he yeah. sounds like a great dad <laughs> so, so relatively speaking this marriage is quite a conventional yes one. but <laughs> it's kind of um we're not used to seeing these matches as love matches they're kind of especially with that age gap or something you'd see it as william wanting new heirs his wife had just died he had two sons and three daughters the civil war wasn't a period in which you could say i've got two sons i'm done i mean you'd think that things were going badly so the idea is perhaps that he wanted to marry her for more heirs that doesn't happen and it's a whole other thing we can discuss but it's also definitely a love match so still in the British Library today are the love letters that Margaret Cavendish wrote to William during their courtship and they're completely gorgeous she has some of the worst handwriting I have ever read um and she'll say <laughs> it's a kind like, of aggrieved theme of your book is every time yeah it's just- impossible to read she can't spell she can't write there's no <laughs> I know I think she actually is personally responsible for changing my prescription but that's fine <laughs> but um so she writes these letters and they're all crossed out and things written up the margin things written through different like letters so that it's kind of almost acrostic at points and she says please uh, lay the fault of my handwriting on my pen you're like that's that's a lie Margaret you, you cannot write to save your life but carrying on she writes these letters where it's very very clear that they've met and all of a sudden something very real had occurred between them they do feel very intimate she's disclosing intimate details about how she feels about the world she writes him a letter which is quite clear has been damaged in some way like 
loads of crossings out and even kind of the ink has been smudged as if she had cried on it I'm not sure uh, it's very hard to prove these things but it, it, there's a te- like, brilliant sense of the material text there and um, it's very very clear that they're writing these letters almost every day and she says do you have a plot against my health you write to me so early I cannot get any sleep and he writes her over 70 love poems in response which is a rate of more than one every two days and they're kind of quite, it's quite a bad poet I seem to remember you saying yes so he writes poems she's the great literary talent yeah he's hopeless he's had more of an education and is friends with all of these poets and he's trying to ape a kind of style of like love poetry which has a john dunnish kind of sense of the material it's almost sexual at points at one point he's trying to minimize their age gap and he writes old and dry wood makes the best fire which is i think my favorite line of all of his poetry but it's so clearly he also discusses a a poem about her marriage hymen all of these things and she has to write in one letter there is a customary law we have to observe before we can do that my lord um which is kind of brilliant she also at one point says my lord let your ear limit your poetry which is my favorite line as well so it's very clear that all of a sudden there was this kind of intellectual literary friendship that blossomed into something more and by the end of their courtship people there were rumors that they had already married they had to get the permission of henrietta maria to marry because margaret was a lady in waiting which didn't come easily and so there was some difficulty there but definitely a very real relationship but in later criticism that's kind of put on a pedestal margaret is seen as despite the rest of her faults a very dutiful wife who goes on to write her biography of her husband and his civil war successes and failures and it's a it's a it's a work of propaganda in which she argues that her husband gave everything up for the civil war and should have been much better rewarded during the restoration than he was in the end but this is often kind of put on the pedestal particularly in the 19th century as well where it's the kind of only redeeming feature for these people writing about margaret is to be able to say she was a good wife so she's definitely seen as an appendage and her biography of him is one of the few works which is kind of always in print from the 17th century onwards even though it's some of her most less interesting literary writing and in this marriage you you know a key thing about her you know he may have married her looking for more heirs but they were not forthcoming she didn't have children how did she feel about that and how did that affect her marriage in the course of her life and her literary life yeah so in her autobiography she writes that he had married me um looking for more fruitful heirs. And so the idea was very much that she would produce new sons. She was 22, he was 52. And pretty soon it's quite clear that they start trying to have children because before long we have doctor's letters in which the doctor is saying, I'm not sure you should be trying to have children. He says Margaret is too hypochondriac and melancholy, uh, which those terms have changed meaning since the 17th century. But the idea being that she was too depressed. Uh, At one point he says it's hard to get children with good courage, meaning it's it's hard at at the best of times. And perhaps you shouldn't try now. clearly clearly trying to have children and before long we have a receipt for infertility so a recipe for infertility which was injected daily alongside all of the other things she was trying so often it's thought that margaret was the infertile partner because william had fathered five children before and his wife had had at least five pregnancies it's not clear if that's necessarily true i mean william could have contracted some std which would have made it impossible but the blame certainly falls on margaret because in her autobiography she writes um i couldn't have any children but nevertheless my husband never loved me any less which is kind of a heartbreaking sentence because the implication is that that would have been what was normal and I became really interested in this the concept of um, like infertility in the period and how people dealt with it so I'm not sure if you've seen The Favourite which is the film with Queen Anne in it and the idea is for every miscarriage she gets a rabbit so the whole house is filled with rabbits and at one point Olivia Coleman crushes a rabbit onto her foot it's horrible but it becomes like a motif for how we were thinking about infertility in the period it was far more common than often um 
we think. And often people discuss child mortality in very different terms. Historically, people say it was so commonplace that it would have become something that was almost normal. And I think that's something that's incredibly, incredibly wrong. So as I read more and more, all of these women who were either related to Margaret or who would have known her, write poems and prayers all about how to try and prevent miscarriage or in order to be able to ensure they could conceive a child. So it becomes this whole seam of literary writing from women, which is absolutely really fascinating from like spiritual memoirs talking about how a woman can conceive a child to at one point Henrietta Maria is having a miscarriage and the doctor has to write a letter to Charles saying, would you rather I saved the child or the mother? And he writes a letter back saying it's better to save the mould than, than what is cast in it. Yes, that's, that was kind of touching detail. Yeah. So her children, and she uses this as a figure in her work consistently, or her, work, her literary works, and William is obviously a very good father to them in the sense yeah. he's, he's encouraging, he's, he's helping her produce them. I mean, not by literally writing them because he's no good at that, but he's supportive and encouraging and, um, and all that. Now, how did she get started writing? What was the sort of work she Because she's done there's such a range of genres and styles and angles of attack and subjects that she does. It's very kind of hard to get a sense. What, what would be the way of getting a handle on the beginning, at least, of her literary career? Yes. So her first book comes out in 1653 and um, it is called, uh, at one point in one of the prefatory poems, it's called Her Newborn Fancies. So the idea is a baby uh, is a kind of brilliant conceit which goes throughout the rest of her work. But her first book comes out in 1653 and it's called Poems and Fancies, which probably already suggests that we've got something genre bending going on. So it is a collection of poems and prose works, but it's quite hard to say in one sentence what they're about. So she begins with poems about atoms, moves into poems about fairies, then moves into poems about ships and civil war and soldiers and then into poetry about her own life so about her own marriage about her mother about her brother's very public execution so it's a group of works which it's hard to sum up what they were she was writing about almost everything that had touched her life and she publishes it incredibly boldly with her name on the title page uh women writing in the this 1650s. is not dumb is it <laughs> no exactly it wasn't necessarily unheard of clearly we have women who have been writing before Catherine Parr a century before comes out with her religious writing and her psalm translations and then from that point onwards we have you know Mary Sidney the um, sister to Sir Philip Sidney who oversees a lot of the publication of his works and also writes her own psalm translations which are circulated in manuscript and then after that we have Amelia Lanya and Lady Mary Roth who both publish but most women's writing that had been published and was print published rather than circulated in manuscript was either done so anonymously so it would be under the title of a lady or perhaps initials or it would be on very very safe subjects very different to what Margaret Cavendish was writing so it would be either wholly devotional so very very religious works or it would be kind of books of advice to mothers about how to raise their children or advice to children from the perspective of a mother and that was kind of already thought of as a bit wild and those were really the only genres in which women had made headway and Margaret appears with her poems about atoms I mean her book opens with poems which kind of almost deny the existence of God in favour of a, a more amorphous natural creator figure so it's really hard to overestimate just how bold or, or naive she was. Well this is one of the kind of extraordinary things that it goes right through the book is this contradiction. I mean, what she's doing is bold. She's putting herself forward under her own name. She's taking on these kind of Lucretian, slightly dangerously atheistical ideas about yeah. the natural order. And as she goes on to become 
you know, it's incredible sort of going out in public in all manner of eccentric and wildly dressed, showy, offy, self-presenting sort of ways. And yet this is a woman who avowedly is Lady Bashful, who is extraordinarily shy. And yet her one thing she says is, my only desire is fame. Yeah. How do these two sides of her character reconcile? It's this central contradiction, which I I did find very, very bizarre, especially in the very early stages of the research, because everything you come up against, what she wrote about herself, is continually about her self-effacing nature. She's Lady Bashful. She writes herself into a play and gives her no lines. She writes about how she was so anxious in her autobiography as a child that she would wait outside her sister's room while she was praying, trying to see if she could still hear her breathing. She's continually worried that every single one of her family members will die. Little did she know a civil war was about to break out and they probably would. Um, So maybe she was just very perceptive. And the idea that she's continually so shy that she doesn't really know how to conduct herself. She's seen as being unfit to go into public society, for example. And she writes that her husband loved her despite of her shyness, not because of it. So this is this one scene which is always self-described. And then the other like wealth of sources we have, especially in the 1660s, is kind of Margaret Cavendish is the first early modern celebrity. She's the woman who's running, hordes of children are running after her in her carriage. So she's kind of being mobbed as if she was, you know, somebody else described her to me as Lady Gaga. I mean, she turns up in an outrageous outfit and then yeah, she's got a boot out in public all the time. I mean, yeah, she's not exactly. She turns up at the theatre. There's this absolutely amazing letter which describes her sitting in a box at the theatre and she's got her boobs out and they're rouged and they've got nipple tassels on. Scarlet tassels is the line. And that's an incredible display of oneself, which which even if that was done in, in private at the time, it was a kind of style that was done in private. It never would have been done in public like that. The letter also suggests that she turned up at the theatre in a carriage pulled by eight white bulls. So I'm not sure we can entirely trust it, but um, it's kind of a gorgeous detail. So yes, it's this central contradiction and it is quite hard to reconcile because Clearly, Cavendish was a very shy figure. Later on, people describe her as being uh, this figure who they could see in public and then when approached in in person would have nothing else to say apart from the page numbers of her books about philosophy. So it's almost as if her introversion is part of her writing life and the extroversion is almost like another fictional version of herself. She becomes more than herself. She becomes kind of like one of the mythical, magical creatures she describes in her prose um, stories. It it is utterly bizarre and I, I wonder if she was playing something else putting something on in order to have a public image but as you say she always writes about how she desired fame perhaps because of her like non-traditional christian theology in which she was not certain of an afterlife we can like go into this later and discuss it if you want or i can just say now but she writes continually in a school of thought which if doesn't outright deny Christian theology about the afterlife or about God's role in the universe, then it makes it very difficult to reconcile. And she writes a a preface to her works where she says, don't worry, I do still believe in God. But at the same time, she's writing things which make that incredibly unclear. And so for her, fame almost becomes the only thing she is certain of after her death. And she writes a very moving poem where she says, if my poems do not in this age take, maybe another age will of them make. So the idea being that her poems could go forth and live after her rather than anything else. So perhaps her desire to be so recognised and so famous is a part of that. But it is an absolute contradiction. She's nipple tassels and crippling anxiety. <laughs> I say it's a look. Now, her feminism, you call her a feminist and you, you are quite kind of starchy about people who are still proto-feminist. How did that manifest itself and, and what was the reaction to it? 
Yes, so she writes, after her work in 1653, she goes on to write another 23 volumes, two of those are translated into Latin, so 21 volumes that she writes herself in English before her death in 1673. Her first work is about atoms and philosophy, and from that she moves on to writing about natural philosophy, but also has a rich theme of writing about women. So she writes a group of fictionalised letters, which are meant to have been sent between women, where they correspond on women's issues together. She writes a uh, an absolute ton of plays, very few of which have ever been performed. And these plays often have plots about like separatist feminist utopias. So women will retreat into a convent and they will live there without any men. And in that convent, they will in fact maybe love each other as if they were woman and man, or they will fight a battle for the men and win it for the men in a woman-only army, or they will retreat into a kind of academy and teach themselves things without the use of men and will set everything up with them. So she's continually thinking about women as if they are separate to men and have separate concerns to men. She writes continually about marriage. She says that marriage is a worse deal for women than it is for men. Uh, one of her yeah, brilliant no, she, she seems to have not. enjoyed her own more or less, doesn't she? Yeah. I, mean, that's, yeah, I, I think she did, mostly. about it all the time, but actually she's got a very nice husband. Very I know, and I think it's kind of her, she was clearly talking a lot to other people and she writes, one of her best lines is like, we women are all miserable. And she's always talking about childbirth. So as we discussed, she couldn't have her own children, but she sees childbirth as something kind of gory and horrific, which could kill women. She kind of configures it as a type of battle that they have to face on themselves. So she's always thinking about women as a separate group, which is obviously one of the central tenets for how women think about feminism and how that's the central point for thinking about women's rights and how everything proceeds from that is the idea that women are treated differently in society to men. And Often people will say that you can't call people feminist until about, you know, the 20th century at the very earliest, or maybe Mary Wollstonecraft and the vindication of the rights of women. So it's more of a thing to call her a proto-feminist, the idea being that she had thoughts about women, but we cannot necessarily call her a feminist. And I really didn't want to call her a proto-feminist because it felt almost patronising. She wouldn't have existed with the term feminism because she didn't know it, but she did think about women as if they were separate and was she writes these oratories where she's writing kind of speeches that are said in a fictionalised environment. And she writes these where she is absolutely virulently defending women's rights and women's ability to be seen as, as as fully conceived human beings who have who have problems which are separate to men but they're not they're not a different species to men and so I want to call her an early feminist she's very much in, in a tradition of English feminist thought which is so rich and does start in the 17th century with Margaret Cavendish and then we go into Mary Astell, Afra Ben and I, I felt like we're doing these women and perhaps feminist history a disservice to cut them out just because they are before when we would normally use the term and I, I came to thinking about this and I, I reasoned it because um, perhaps we could all be called proto-feminists in 70 years if things move further on um, <laughs> so I just didn't want to cut them out of history and so I wanted to make it a more inclusive historical definition of feminism but I, I, I think I'm very comfortable for people not to agree with me so I'm very aware that that's a, that's a well, spicy I'm wearing my t-shirt saying this is what a proto-feminist looks like yeah um, I'm interested in some of the land grabs she makes as well because in terms of her sort of interest in, you know, the domains of women and the problems of women and what, what's proper, she sort of says at one point, you know, poetry is female. Yes. And she later claims reason as a female virtue, though she sort of wavers on that. Um, I love this stuff, yeah. 
it's absolutely brilliant. She does say, so in the opening of her first volume, she says that poetry is better suited to women because we're used to working with our fingers and weaving. And you're like, Margaret, I'm not sure you've ever done much weaving or spinning, but okay. (laughs) Um, So it's this idea, I think it is a land grab, as you say. I think it's her setting out her claim. She has to almost overstate her claim in order to be able to write at all. Clearly, poetry is not something that is female at the point. And in her saying that, she's hoping to be allowed in a tiny bit. So she has to overstate and be almost ridiculous in order to get the slightest amount of land. But it does mean that she does run the risk of coming off a a bit ridiculous. But it is kind of brilliant. She does gender reason as feminine. And this is one of the things I got really, really interested in. And I'm very aware is probably not interesting for many other people unless you've read every single version of Margaret Cavendish's books. But as she goes on and edits her work in later life, she returns to her books and republishes them many times. And often they change significantly between editions. She will change the pronouns. So she changes reason to feminine, then changes it back to masculine, then eventually changes it back to feminine again. And you have to think that wasn't accidental. Something was going on there. Why would you decide initially to gender reason as feminine? And then would why would you decide not to? And and then eventually to return to a kind of gynocentric view of, of rationale, which is brilliant as well. And um, it's really hard to put a finger on, on what could change in between those different versions. I think her idea of reason as feminine is very much making a claim to a different type of reason, to the type of reason that was being discussed in the Restoration. So this is the age of the Royal Society and the beginning of kind of Restoration science. So it's still pre-Newtonian science. So it's very much the age of the educated amateur where things were up for grabs, but it's also the age of Robert Hooke's Micrographia and all of those kind of brilliant experiments uh, with an air pump, like that very, very famous painting. So it's the age of experimentation kind of proving things. And Francis Bacon had obviously kind of the idea of Baconian science was very much predicated on on reason. And this version of reason depends on experimental science, which Margaret Cavendish only half, only Didn't half. Didn't have much time for it. She's not an Yeah, exactly. She's not entirely <laughs> convinced by it. So I think her version of reason becomes something very different. And in the book, I tried to suggest that perhaps her version of reason is more along the lines of a kind of lady reason who speaks to Christine de Pizan. So who is a medieval, I'm about to say, feminist thinker, but t- read proto-feminist if you'd rather. Yes, you've got a bibliographical mini scoop about that. Yes. That Christine de Pizan. <laughs> This yeah, hugely popular my... medieval period vanishes until about I don't know, sort of nineteenth century or so. Yeah. But Margaret Cavendish owned her most famous manuscript, which is kind of the absolutely best detail I could have come across. She also doodled in it, so you can open it, you can request it to the British Library manuscript room, and they'll bring it up, and they'll be like, "So careful, please, please don't cough over this, please don't draw on it." You open it up, and Margaret Cavendish has done a pencil drawing. <laughs> And coughed over it, probably. Yeah, probably. So it's this beautiful manuscript, which has uh, Christina Pizan is a very, very prominent medieval feminist thinker who writes uh, the Book of the City of the Ladies, which is a text about how women could retreat into a city where they would be safe from... men basically and uh, would have space for good women and um, I like to think of it as kind of a room of one's own but but a few centuries earlier and she was very famous for beautiful manuscripts that had amazing illuminations and everything and you would think this is very very different to Margaret Cavendish who at one point even claims she cannot read French at all which is something I'm not entirely sure I believe and the most famous manuscript of Christine de Pezan's work was owned by Margaret Cavendish's husband and her which is absolutely brilliant so these kind of networks of women's writing kind of weave throughout her life um which is really wonderful but it is one of those bits where i did think the book had gone off on a tangent <laughs> <laughs> well it does 
I mean, that bears on something that's a, that's a real thing. But I want to return to this thing of learning on the job and the revisions she made. That you know, as you say, she's sort of uneducated when she's in France and in you know, moved to Antwerp. She's sort of adrift, somewhat, and yes. then she gets to meet Locke and Hobbes and Descartes and so forth. But it's only when she comes back after the Restoration suddenly she's got access to a whole bunch of books and reads ferociously and sort of educates herself. And then yes. later. She has this other period when she's suddenly going through revising all of her books to make them less mad or at yes. least more coherent and lucid and structured and revise her early books as well, doesn't she? So she sort of reinvents herself as she gets an Enlightenment education. Is that a fair way of putting it? Absolutely. So her first works are kind of characterised by a kind of capacious delight in detail and different genres and turning her mind to anything at all her very first work is actually her third published work it's called the world's olio and she wrote that when she was in antwerp and it's a prose work where she will write down basically what her husband has told her about something you know my husband has told me that monasteries are very bad and then she'll write but i'm not so sure i agree so she's already engaging her intellect with disagreeing with what she was being told but then she returns to london in 1660 and there are amazing receipts of her husband's estate manager being sent off to pick up her books and her spending an absolutely ludicrous amount of money on books and she's suddenly got a library again and she's reading all of these works and she becomes much more engaged in a kind of greater school of natural philosophy her very early natural philosophy is is kind of nothing else other than the product of her own brain and her discussions with her husband's brother Charles Cavendish who was also a, a mathematician and a scientist and his uh his notebooks um which like prove a, a discussion with Hobbes and all of his engagement are in the British Library as well. So she kind of had that, but then she returns and she edits all of her later works. Some of them she edits so much so that they get new titles and she changes her natural philosophy. She moves from a theory of kind of Epicurean decretion atomism, which is radical in and of itself. And then she thinks this is too random. If everything in the world moved randomly, then the world would be one of absolute disorder. And I like to think this is also her political side showing through. She hated disorder. She hated the disorder of the protectorate she hated the disorder of the civil wars she wanted something with a strict hierarchical royalist order and so she turns towards a theory of vitalist materialism which sounds incredibly complex and isn't it also sounds kind of ridiculous to us now but that's because we live in the 21st century after we very much learned far more about how the world works but this is the age where there were so many theories circulating and they all sound as bizarre as each other so Descartes has a theory that everything in the world is reduced to corpuscles of matter and she writes about vitalist materialism where all of the world is made up of three different types of matter and some of that matter has the ability to control and move the other so it's a royalist society she describes it as if a king or a mayor could direct the other parts of the matter and she changes her books to incorporate this so she writes them all gives them new titles and that's one of her greatest revisions is she's kind of writing herself into a world of natural philosophy she also writes where she explicitly engages with other figures and has letters of correspondence with them so she's not as isolated a thinker as we might think but the other thing she does is she goes through and rewrites her poetry she'll rewrite it to make it more regular she'll rewrite it to change the pronouns or she'll go through and take out lines of poetry in her prose work to make sure that the prose work is now more standardized and reads like a a more normal scientific text for the period so she's continually engaged with presenting herself as an intellectual figure and this comes at the same point that she's presenting herself as kind of the fashion it girl of 17th century society. They're almost coterminous, which is um, kind of an utterly bizarre fact as well. But I became really, really intrigued by this because so much of what people know about Margaret Cavendish is that she was the eccentric. She was a kind of dilettantish figure who wrote without really knowing what she was doing. But there is proof that she did edit her works on an incredibly minute level, which kind of undermines that view. 
Yeah, and you know this spectacular self-presentation, as theorists like to call it, that did bear on her reception in the world as well at the at the time as well as now, doesn't it? Because you you describe this, and it's one of the few other things that people know about Margaret Cavendish. This visit she paid to the Royal Society. Yes. When she yes. kind of appeared, and it, all these kind of fusty old gentlemen are doing their experiments on you know worms in the bellies of albatrosses or whatever was on that. <laughs> didn't quite know how to deal with it. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so um, it's one of the most well-recorded things we have as well. The history of the Royal Society is incredibly well-recorded for its early period. So uh, they would write up the individual minutes, and we still have all of those. And they're discussing how to measure the ground or something. And Margaret Cavendish is running very late, so they've had to continue with the rest of their meeting. And you can already feel the kind of seething resentment from the minutes. They're sitting there being like, when is this bitch going to turn up? When is she going to appear? And she turns up in a coach with her attendant ladies, one of whom is like a very, very famous Italian beauty so we're already unsure why she's there and she's wearing a dress that has such a long train that is picked up and carried by her ladies-in-waiting and she's accessorized it with a very very masculine hat and coat so one of the poems John Evelyn writes about the visit is um, she looks like a cavalier but that she had no beard um, so she's cross-dressing but also wearing something that was absolutely ridiculous for the period that type of long train very much wasn't in style and if it was it would have been worn to court events rather than to a visit to the Royal Society it's it's very hard to put a finger on these things but it, it was ludicrous and all of the descriptions about it do describe it as ludicrous and she walks in and they're discussing how to measure the ground and they show her all of the experiments and apparently she just couldn't engage that much I mean it's very hard to believe what Samuel Pepys said about her because he clearly had a bit of a crush on her at one point and then the crush kind of faded away yeah he did he did he did Uh, so it kind of fades away and then he becomes more and more disillusioned with her but um, he says that she said nothing worth hearing and it was obviously just very kind of deferential to the men of the Royal Society having been so rude to them in print she disagrees with them uh, virulently her observations upon experimental philosophy is written almost in direct contest with them and that's also the book that the blazing world appears uh, appended to the end of initially and then she does all of this and then she leaves and then they return to discussing how to operate on a spleen (laughs) well good for them um that leads us on to the work that she's now remembered for even though as you say her biography of her husband was the one that was in print for so long the blazing world she you know falls out of the royal society she engages in all this extraordinary stuff And then she invents science fiction. Yes, she does. What a great life. Um, Yeah, so The Blazing World comes out in 1666 and it is initially part of her work of natural philosophy. And it is hard to overstate just how wildly brilliant this book is. It is compulsively readable. If you've read nothing else from the 17th century, pick it up and it's like reading a fun novel. So it begins with a woman is gathering shells on a beach, which is kind of like a classical trope of a woman gathering flowers. You know that sooner or later something very bad is about to happen. Um, And she gets kidnapped by a merchant on his ship who kind of kidnaps her for her beauty. Then God is so angry. Crucially, Margaret Cavendish never really directly writes about God in this sense, apart from in her prose romances where where it helps her, her woman out. God is so angry that he causes a huge storm which directs her boat towards the North Pole. Now, according to Margaret Cavendish, it's a little known fact that at the North Pole, there is a pole which connects another world to our own. And the storm is Literally so great. A pole. Could, yeah. 
it pushes the boat all the way through. Then the merchant dies and all of the other sailors on the ship die. And this woman is kept alive by the light of her youth and her beauty. So she's too pretty to die, according to Margaret Cavendish. Appears in this new world and has to come out of her cabin because the corpses of the dead sailors are putting up such a stench, it's so horrible. And all of a sudden, she's in kind of the Arctic. But instead of being greeted by polar bears, she's greeted by anthropomorphic figures who are half polar bear, half man. She's in a new world where there are absolutely tons of these type of anthropomorphic figures. There are lice men, wolf men, bear men, satyrs, everything. And they take her to the emperor of this world, who quite promptly marries her. He initially wants to revere her as a goddess. She says, don't worry, don't worry, I'm only human. Gets married. She becomes the empress of the world and the emperor is never really heard of again. And in this new world, she sets up a kind of scientific academy. She's the empress and all of these anthropomorphic half-man figures are her scientists and her mathematicians and her astrologers and astronomers who work underneath her to explain the world to her. So it's a work of science fiction which is about science as much as it engages in bizarre scientific developments. So she describes ships that are almost like submarines in order to get her through into this new world. Everything is, it's science fiction in that sense as well as it is, it is about kind of natural philosophy and all of that. And it's also a work of kind of feminist uh, utopianism as well because this woman is now in charge of this whole world and all of the men work underneath her and quite clearly the empress is a stand-in for margaret cavendish herself so the empress expounds upon margaret cavendish's theories about why experimental philosophy is not the only way to explore the world this woman the empress margaret cavendish makes kind of the lice men and the bear men kind of stand-ins for the royal society men uh, so she disagrees with them through this hilariously funny text but she also at one point brings up herself again so the empress is going to write um, a theory a of the and world. herself I mean, she, she's in exactly. there too, isn't she? So she is. postmodernism. Yeah. It is very much postmodernism. So she's about to write her theory of the world, which would be the blazing world itself. So it's very, very meta. And then she says, I need a scribe. Could I have Aristotle? Could I have Plato? And then the spirits talk to her and they say, oh, you don't want one of those famous men. They'll only write their own thing. They won't actually want to write what you write. And then she says, oh, maybe I need a woman. What about the first Duchess of Newcastle, Margaret Cavendish? And the spirits go, of course, of course you can have her. So they go into, back into the normal world, retrieve her spirit. She becomes a spiritual scribe. And the two women have a kind of spiritual sex, which is not quite platonic and is very much not platonic at all because they say we should probably apologise to her husband. And they say, oh, it's only spiritual sex they won't know um so it's this absolutely brilliant story which is as radically bizarre as it is scientifically interesting and it is unbelievably readable it is uh, the first work of science fiction which explores a new world and there had been others which had talked about the moon for example but it kind of predates gulliver's travels particularly i mean all of the different types of half human half man it also kind Does of it influence I think, really, gulliver's travels is there any evidence for that very very hard to put a finger on it the resemblances are almost uncanny but we can't prove he was writing quite a bit later and we can't prove that he would have owned or read or copy um but it's intriguing i wish we could so the blazing world by your enthusiasm is clearly the thing that the modern reader of margaret cavendish is going to find most to value in i think from them in i think you're probably right yeah her atomism as you as you say in a kind of very fair way is sort of like it's kind of bonkers, but so was everybody else's theories at the time, so we mustn't do her down for that. But she was, as you say, you know, she died at 50, she kind of young, relatively speaking, unexpectedly. And at the time, she was, you know, she'd achieved her wish. She was super famous. Children chased her around. She, The great show-off had triumphed, um, or the great show-off in her had triumphed. What happened to her reputation after her death? How did her fame last and 
you know, how did that, if you give a quick sketch of, of what's happened between then and yeah. now. So she dies in 1673, has an absolutely extraordinarily bizarrely huge funeral with her horses draped in black, her own coronet impaled on her husband's as a symbol of her death. And she's buried in Westminster Abbey under a kind of effigy of her and her husband touching. Uh, crucially, it's put there before he's dead. And under an epitaph which says that she had no issue other than her books, which is kind of a lovely way of looking at it in a way. And uh, her husband oversees the production of two volumes of letters and poems to her about her success. But after that, pretty soon she drops out of the kind of literary memory and the world. She appears in a couple of literary magazines in the late 17th century and early 18th century, where she is kind of discussed as being only her most kind of marginal poetry is kind of included. And it's quite bizarrely discussed on the same page with Milton. So one of her odes to melancholy is is compared to one of Milton's poems. And they even suggest she could have influenced Milton, which is a bit bizarre because it must have been the other way around if it had happened. So she appears very piecemeally, more of a figure of a female writer than through her own literature itself. This continues on through the 18th century and into the 19th century, where she's included in anthologies or included in histories of women writing, but only ever kind of as a mad figure who had written and her own work is very very much cut up and only the most bizarre stuff is included so her poems about fairies are included but often without the detail about atomism so her poems about fairies are often about atoms but they just make it kind of like a fae form of fairies which they even cut out the crude material so they won't describe the fairies eating cobwebs for example because that's seen as too improper for a woman to write about well they really should have read what else she was writing about and then that carries on into the 19th century where she is kind of only really remembered for writing the biography of her husband. Charles Lamb, in his essays of Elia, kind of writes about how much he adores her, but it's very, very hard to understand how much of her he had read. Then her reputation is kind of sealed by Virginia Woolf in the 20th century, where she describes her volumes mouldering in public libraries, in the gloom of public libraries. And luckily, archivists have rescued them from that. But she's kind of sealed as this figure who's very, very much only ever read incredibly partially in uh, anthologies or in very edited editions. In one of her edited editions, an editor cuts out all of the the hints of lesbian sex and instead just makes it a poem about oysters uh, without any of the crucial oyster imagery, which makes sense of including the oysters um and so she, she becomes she, this... her lesbian interests were theoretical weren't they rather than apparently broadly theoretical i mean but it is a re- recurring motif which shows an interest but it's part of a broader interest in the 17th century in writing about you know, lesbianism which um like beyond the kind of cross-dressing titillating stuff which was seen on stage a lot of people were writing about it as an interest which is fascinating as well but yeah and then she's kind of really utterly forgotten until in the 20th century she appears again in the 1950s in a biography um, called Margaret the First by Douglas Grant in which it's broadly complimentary but he does claim that she was uh, a useless scientist who did no experiments and who was unable to edit her own works for example so she's always been couched in this term of kind of dilettantish madness and eccentric who who wrote without really knowing what she was doing and I really really wanted to to disagree with that but also bring her to a a general audience outside of academia because I think there's a lot to love in her story. Well you've said how much of it and if anyone wants the whole story, Pure Wit is out right now. Francesca Peacock, thanks very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.